in this rite of passage of crossing over that we do, there is information communicated. You know, I talk about the history and I say, hey, this is what we're doing. But there is a depth of meaning that is that is somehow deeper than words that rituals tend to communicate. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Amy F. Davis Abdallah is a professor, a writer, a speaker, and a creator of rituals. Her latest book is Meaning in the Moment, How Rituals Help Us Move Through Joy, Pain, and Everything in Between. Starting with the foundation that rituals are a core and underexplored part of Christian practice, she draws from theology, psychology, and personal experiences in creating rituals for herself and others. In this episode, Amy and I talk about the difference between communicating meaning and communicating information. We talk about the ways we ritualize without knowing it. And I ask Amy whether she has rituals around her own writing life. Amy F. Davis Abdallah, I'm so happy that you're on the Habit Podcast today. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, your uh, newish book, your most recent book, let's say, Meaning in the Moment, How Rituals Help Us Move Through Joy, Pain, and Everything in Between. Uh, when people ask what this book's about, how do you summarize it? What's your What's your elevator pitch for this book? It's a really good question. I think that I would say life is really hard and it has lots of ups and downs and lots of challenges. And we are frequently in the middle of transitions. And so those transitions are challenging. The best way to help us through those transitions, whether it's a transition that we desire or transitions that are mm-hmm. challenging, is to is is by, by ritual. Uh, I think in my Christian tradition, I've very much uh, ignored rituals as possibilities, even though we had our own rituals, and we'll probably talk about that later. But I think there are there are actions that we can do, particularly ritual actions, that will help us live well in our lives, and mm. that's what I offer in the book. Okay. Uh, Maybe we should define, when you say ritual, what do you mean? Yeah, so I use ritual. It's a really hard word to to define. I use Teresa Rando's definition. She is a she's a clinical psychologist, and she says basically rituals are actions, or but we'll we'll leave it at actions. Actions that we do that symbolically represent what we deeply feel or deeply think. And so um, when I when you have a wedding, that's just a common ritual that most mm-hmm. of us have experienced, whether for ourselves or for someone else. It is an action that is done that that symbolically represents what is deeply felt or what is hoped for or what what is thought. Christian worship is something that I do that represents um, what we think about God and what I, what what I think about myself as a human. And so the wedding, the actions that are done in the wedding are symbolic union of people. And I would argue that the ritual itself actually does something for the people. It's not just mm-hmm. something that we do, but but it actually forms it's, the yeah, individuals there and, and, and the our rituals form us. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I was thinking when when you said the when you use that definition that it uh, I think you said it ref- I can't remember what, what the verb is, but reflects what we uh what we think or feel, what we deeply think or feel. What's the right word? What's the verb you use? Yeah, it's um symbolically represents. Symbolically represents. Um, but also, and you've already touched on this, it it forms us, it shapes us into, hopefully. Um, I mean, sometimes the ritual doesn't represent what I actually feel. It's what I know I ought to <laughs> ought to feel or ought to think. Is that fair to say? 
Absolutely. And I think I want to be sure that we distinguish rituals from simple habits. Mm -hmm. So some habits are ritualistic and some habits Mm -hmm. are rituals. And then some habits are just simply habits. Both of them are helpful to us. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I say, okay, I hope you brushed, when I talk to students, I say, I hope you brushed your teeth this morning. That's a really, really good habit, but I don't think it's a ritual. Mm. And a ritual can be repeated or it can be a one-time event. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Could, Could you say just a little bit more about the distinction between a habit and a ritual? Because yeah. in common usage, those those words do get sort of used as, as synonyms sometimes. Yeah, I think that what I would like to say is that not all habits are rituals, but some habits are rituals. Mm-hmm. So if I have a habit of, of daily prayer, if I pray every morning, that's a habit and a ritual because mm-hmm. it symbolically represents something I deeply, I deeply believe. Um, and it forms me. I would I would say that it forms me, but uh, but there are habits that we simply do. Like I cook dinner for my for my family frequently, and so that's a habit. I I seek cleanliness. I'm I'm brushing my teeth and showering. I mean, those are those are really really good habits, and we could say they point to our understanding of cleanliness. But it's more of a it's more of a you don't really have to think about a ritual for it to be meaningful, but. But it's but it's not like something I that is feels really deep to me to think about the cleanliness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as distinct from a ritual cleansing, which sometimes happens. Yes, absolutely, and that's a that's a really good point because there are ritual cleansings that we do, and there are baptisms, and so mm-hmm. that is symbolically representing cleansing, and so you actually do the cleansing, you go through water, um, and there are different habits, different ways of doing it. I just threw that word habit, and I got a little bit concerned because I used that, but there are different <laughs> modes by which we yeah. we accomplish that ritual. And it is, it's something that we do in our bodies and that other people help us with mm-hmm. that is pointing to not solely physical cleansing, but pointing to forgiveness, pointing to a cleansing from sin, pointing to these deeper, these deeper mm-hmm. understandings. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's helpful. I, my non-ritual, I'm washing my hands to get dirt off my hands. A ritual cleansing is speaking to something beyond the physical dirt on my hands. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, your book is divided into three parts. Each part answers a question. Why do we ritualize? How do we ritualize? What do we ritualize? Would you run through some quick answers to those three questions? Why do we yeah, ritualize? So, absolutely. Why do we ritualize? Uh, we always do it. It's a human thing. Humans have always ritualized and, uh, and it's just something that humans have always done. So we do it because it's part of who we are, but we also do it. And uh, I would, I really, especially like my third chapter in the book where I really look into the psychology of ritual mm-hmm. and the, and ritual theory. And there are some really proven, greatly proven benefits to ritualizing rituals unite us. Rituals form us. Rituals help us. Rituals do things for us as a society. And I can't talk about that without also saying that rituals can also deform us. Rituals can also, rituals are not always used for good and positive events in our society. Um, Gang rituals. Uh, you know, there are, there, there are other rituals and one of the things, so my, my audience is primarily Christian and a lot of them are anti-ritual. They're like, we've never done a ritual. And then I like to point out, Hey, you actually do rituals because this is how you do it. And you do it basically in the same way. And even though it's, 
extemporaneous, you're making up your words as you go, you're still following a basic pattern and you do it at the same time and you do, and you do this. And so, so I like to point you out, a hey, church you're, service. pardon me? Are, are you specifically mean in a church service? Yeah. Like in a church service. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of done in, in a regular, in a regular format. And I just lost exactly where I was going with that. I'm sorry, but it's my fault. No, it wasn't your fault. I already lost it before you said it. <laughs> Then so you were glad I interrupted you. I was glad. I should have just gone with that and not admitted that I lost <laughs> I lost where I was going. But but so we already are ritualizing. Uh -huh. I guess was I guess was where I was going. That we're already ritualizing. And uh, rituals can form us or deform us. Rituals mm -hmm. do things for us and to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would suggest that it's high time we intentionally ritualize mm -hmm. because so much of our unintentional ritualizing doesn't form us in the way that we would like to be formed. Hmm. And so intentionality is really key. I, I do a lot of work, like I like rituals that exist, but I'm also really interested in rituals and creating new rituals. And that's what you see a lot of in my book. And yeah. so that's why do we ritualize? How do we ritualize? Um, there are in the, I have two chapters in there, which are rituals, ritual don'ts and, and mm -hmm. ritual do's, like kind of like, this is what you should avoid. And so there's just some real nitty gritty stuff about, about, what we should avoid doing. You don't do something because some other culture did it and you just kind of import it into your culture and say, oh, wow, isn't this cool? There's a couple of other ideas in there. But uh, what I think one of the most significant portions of the how do we ritualize has to do with symbols. What's really interesting about our senses is that our visual sense trumps all of our other senses. And yet symbols themselves as objects, so let's just talk about symbols are broader than that, like where we do a ritual, how we do a ritual, who we invite to the ritual, that is also symbolic. But if we're only going to talk about the objects themselves, um, they convey in just one object so much more than words. And uh, um, I, I often talk about this wedding ring that I have mm -hmm. on my finger that was blessed during my, my wedding, during my marriage vows, you know, like right after that. And and how this, yes, I wear it on my finger and it signals something to you. Mm -hmm. But if I were to take this off and throw it at my husband, yeah. it's not just a single, it's not just a signal. I mean, that would be saying something so much with just a simple object that's just a just some gold, you know? Mm -hmm. And so thinking through the symbolic, I think is um is something that at least in my tradition, we we frequently forget about because mm -hmm. we don't think it's that important. We think that we're we're really just everything we experience is kind of in our brains mm -hmm. but the reality is that's we experience things visually and tactilely and and with our senses and that is something that god has given us and it's really good and so to be intentional about the symbols and i like to be just intentional about the symbols just in my own life even if they're not connected to ritual so i have this little um rock that has a cross on it that's in my winter jacket pocket and it's not in mm -hmm. both my winter jacket pockets because i have a light winter jacket i live in new york so i have a light winter jacket <laughs> and then a, a heavy winter jacket yeah and and in that jacket pocket when i go in there and i hold that rock and it has a cross on it it just reminds me that god is with me at all times is that a mini ritual possibly is it primarily a symbol possibly as well and so there are a lot of, in the book, there's a lot of tips on on how to create effective rituals that form individuals in the way that we would desire to be formed. And then what do we ritualize? There's so much we can ritualize, but I focus on ends, middles, and beginnings. And I mm -hmm. start with ends 
because I, I get that from William Bridges, who writes a lot on transition. But I start with ends because saying goodbye well helps us say hello well. We think story, beginning, middle, end, but um, we don't end well. Uh, I don't think as a society, mm -hmm. we don't grieve well. We think like you're over it immediately. In fact, we don't necessarily offer space for people to actually grieve. I mean, if you think about mm -hmm. it, and if we're only thinking about death, and that's that's one end that we're all aware of and that we all experience, but there's so many other ends. But we don't, um, it's just like, okay, this is how many days you get off from work based on how close that person is to you. Yeah. And if they're not very close, you don't actually get any day off and you don't necessarily get a bereavement fair. And then you're supposed to go to a funeral and then the next day you're supposed to be fine because you're going to go back right back to work and everything's going to be normal. And within two weeks, no one ever asks you about it anymore. So we, but that grief we know subjectively continues. And mm -hmm. uh, if you've lost a parent, you feel like an orphan for the rest of your life. At least that's what I've heard. I have not lost my parents. Um, and so how do we say goodbye? How do we say goodbye well? I mean, we how do our process and other cultures have significantly more elaborate um, mm -hmm. processes of grieving. And I'm not saying that's what we should do. And I think we can do this individually, but also as 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 a as a subculture, you know, like my church subculture, what will that look like in my church subculture? So I don't think we do well with ends. And then I also think we're even worse on our middle time periods. So mm -hmm. I mentioned to you right before we started recording that I'm in a what, what I would call a liminal time period, mm -hmm. which is a period of unemployment. So the school that I worked at for 21 years closed. And I have, I mean, I'm doing a lot of different kind of smaller jobs, but none of them is full-time. So I'm in between a state of employment, of full-time employment, and I don't know what's going to be next. I certainly have hopes and I certainly have interviews and I'm certainly mm -hmm, applying, yeah. but but I don't know what's next. And not only do people face times of unemployment, but there are multiple people in our world that are in chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And so and so you're in between a state of health and a state of possibly renewed health or possibly not renewed health. And yeah. so how do we live well in those liminal states? And I want to explore this more. I don't think I've explored it nearly as much as I could, but but rituals can help us live well. Because here's the thing, you know, everyone everyone says, you know, when someone has a chronic illness, you know, they'll pray for healing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's always this, okay, let's fix your problem. I was single until I was 39. I always had wanted to get married. And uh, you don't have to want to get married when you're single. I mean, I, I, I learned during that time that singleness is a, is a really blessed place, mm -hmm. but I'd always wanted to get married. And so people always wanted to solve my problem. They didn't help me figure out how to live well in that liminal state. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't think we do ends that well. I don't think we do middles that well. And I think rituals will help us process and live through them. Can but you then, give an example of what a, a ritual in a middle, you know, in a liminal space looks like? Yeah. So I, I've i invented a couple. So there's a couple in my book. There's There's one that is just for liminal times. And uh, and I did this. I was preaching at a university chapel last week, and and it's just a it's a real in the in the book I have right now with friends and at church rituals. So kind of mm -hmm. three different types, and I have two right now rituals that come in the liminal in the liminal um, chapter. And so it's just an action of you know grounding yourself. Like one of the things that you'll hear a lot in mindfulness practices, you ground yourself. You've got your two feet on your ground, and it's not just it's the hit 
historical contemplative practices do this mm-hmm. and um, state to God about your ambiguity. Uh, learning to tolerate ambiguity is actually a recipe for resilience. Um, there's a great book by Pauline Boss mm-hmm. called The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in Time of Pandemic. And she writes a lot about, okay, how do we become resilient people? Um, but but you state your amb- ambiguity to God. And then you take something that's solid, like a glass of water. yeah, And you look at it and you say, wow, that's solid. And then you think through the solid things in your life. Like what, yeah. even though there's a certain area of ambiguity, what can you depend on? Uh-huh. What is still there? And you drink the water and you say, in the same way that God, you've provided this water for me, because that is not a small thing. It is not a small thing to have access to fresh, clean water. Yeah. In the same way that you've provided this for me, I believe that you're going to provide what I need. Hmm. And uh, there's another limo ritual that I I use. It's for empowerment in the middle of any task. Um when I was writing my book uh, that I would sometimes just reach this, reach spots where I'm like, I can't go anymore. I'm mm-hmm. totally messed up. And so, so I just did, a, it was kind of a breath. There's always breath with the rituals. Um, went outside, changed my location. Um, and I suggest that, that you change your location. And uh, I don't remember exactly how that one worked, but those are, um, but it was just like, Holy Spirit, breathe in me mm-hmm. to empower me to, to continue this. And then there's one that I suggest that hasn't actually been done, but um, it's kind of about marking time. So I don't, I haven't been really good at figuring out how to mark time during my stage of unemployment. Mm-hmm. But I would say, particularly for something like chronic illness, or I would have loved to have done this for myself for singleness. And and I look at this as a as a time in the middle, like at one point every year. Like people come together. Hey, if you're in a liminal state, come together. And maybe I have a bracelet or something where I put another bead on every year. And I think I'm thankful for what has gone on. I'm also hopeful for something different. Um, you know, I think I think that happens a lot in liminal mm-hmm. in liminal mm-hmm. states. But figuring yeah. out how to be thankful and, and then how to be hopeful and having some kind of symbolic object that helps you helps you move forward. The truth is, um, I think there's so much more that can be done, particularly for liminality. And it's probably the the most challenging because of the ambiguity. The the very nature of liminality is ambiguous. And so how do you act out ambiguity via ritual? Ends are less ambiguous, even though there's ambiguity and anxiety in ends. And beginnings are less ambiguous, even though there's anxiety and ambiguity in beginnings. And that we don't recognize. Mm -hmm. But the liminality is is just more challenging. And I'm really, really interested in doing some work in that area. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we sh- should provide a definition of liminality. We've using the word liminality, but that might be helpful to have a definition now that we've been talking about it for about 15 minutes. Yes. I'm sorry. I am a certified nerd and <laughs> I use I use words and I sometimes forget that people aren't necessarily familiar with that. Basically, liminality is a state of being in between. It's uh-huh. something has ended. And so unemployment something that I had depended on for 21 years of my life has ended and I'm not yet to whatever is going to begin. And there's a liminal time period. Uh, Engagement is a period of liminality that Mm -hmm. many people have experienced. Education is a period of liminality. So you're within a liminal time period. And this term often comes from ritual theory and uh, work on rites of passage in traditional cultures. And so it's basically like you're taken out of childhood. You're no longer a child. 
You're not let yet an adult. And so during that time period, there's there are often tests and trials. You need mm-hmm. to prove yourself. There, there are time, there are time periods of learning. And yet, uh, I would say that we are constantly in a state of liminality between birth and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's there's big picture liminality that we experience as humans. And then there are smaller areas of liminality. I I haven't, I don't have any statistics to back this up or anything, but I think <laughs> we so spend more time in liminal time periods than beginning or ending. Mm-hmm. And and that and it's it's a state that we don't always acknowledge because it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We don't, we want to, particularly I think in the West and perhaps particularly in the United States, we want to to have everything wrapped up in a bowl we in a bow like like everything's mm-hmm. done and we think we can control everything and to embrace liminality and that is what I do suggest in the book like you can embrace it and you can embrace it via ritual to embrace liminality means to say I don't I don't have control and the truth is we don't we just yeah. like to feel like we do yeah yeah okay so we've hit rituals of endings rituals of the middle tell us about rituals of the beginning the beginning is the shortest chapter that I have in the book because I think we often ritualize beginnings. Mm-hmm. But what I do suggest is that uh, we don't we we think, hey, let's do this, let's do this wedding ritual, and then just like go ahead, you do that marriage thing. We'll just we'll just let you go. It's it's only <laughs> happiness and joy. Yeah. And um, I think in our beginning rituals, excuse me, our beginning rituals, I think, are missing the the ambiguity the the ambivalence that that happens and the fact that beginnings are really hard you know mm-hmm. i would i think it's good to celebrate creating a new business if you're starting a new business absolutely celebrate that celebrate that day do your grand opening but don't forget and maybe add to your ritual don't forget that new businesses take a long time and mm-hmm. and that they take a huge amount of effort and sometimes you feel like you're doing all of this effort and it's not it's not rewarding you in the same way. But we like to celebrate beginnings because we think beginnings are really happy. Yeah. And they are. They're also really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one thing you you talk about that I thought was really interesting um, is, on the one hand, one thing that r- ritual does is it, or can do, is sort of conserve the past, connect us to, the, to our past, um, but also how did you put it uh, to bring transformation by increasing agency so ritual um you know brings transformation not just it's not just a function of preserving the past i think a lot of times we think of ritual especially a long established ritual as being something that preserves the past or conserves the past and that that's a a, a great value of ritual but i'd love to hear you say more about transform i mean you you've you already said quite a bit about transformation, but I, I suspect you have more to say. And especially that idea of agency. Like, what, what does ritual have to do with agency? So that was about three or four questions all at once. So I'll let you There we go. We'll see part. if I can remember even one of them. I'll work on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> rituals do connect us to the past. And there's something really, really good about that connection to past history of humanity. Um, as a Christian, for me, it's it's important for me to be connected to Christian tradition for the last 2,000 years. But the purpose is not to put me back in the past mm-hmm. or to say that the past was right and, and we don't have anything new to offer now. And so that connection is significant, but it's not supposed to conserve it as much as it is to, to take us where we are now, connect us to it, certainly, 
and then give us increasing agency. I think frequently, and that I get that from Tom Driver. He's got a great book called Transforming Rights. It's an older mm-hmm. book. I, I used it when I was getting my PhD. And, and he talks about increasing freedom. But freedom is such a weird word, particularly in the United States, that we think uh-huh. about uh, agency. So how, what can I do now that I couldn't do before? And how does the ritual help me do something new? So let me give an example. I do and have been doing for more than a decade, a rite of passage for women. We call it woman, a rite of passage. It comes from my dissertation research. And uh, that rite of passage, the purpose of it is it's identity forming uh, so that the women can walk out of their college experience, their undergraduate experience, saying, I am a Christian woman. I'm not looking for something else to define me. So how does that give them agency? Well, I connect it to their college graduation, which gives agency in the world, right? So it's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of recognized as something, hey, you're now, to a certain extent, I think it's still a recognition of adulthood, although you don't need to have a college education to be sure. an adult. It is one of those rites of passage, but it gives them a greater freedom and ability to be themselves. And particularly the, the concern, I, I work with a lot of uh, Christians who who look for the role with women, particularly looking for a role of wife as a, as a defining identity characteristic. Mm-hmm. And it, um, for those of us who are married and those of us who aren't marrying, that is not our identity. It is a role. Yeah. It is mm-hmm. not the identity. And so to be able to say, I can function in this role and because roles change, our identity mm-hmm. remains, remains constant. So I have the ability to choose this role or choose out of this, this role. And I will still be me and I'm still a valuable human. And so whenever I do rites of passage and I, I consult with churches and they say, hey, we really want to do something. And I say, well, it's really, really important if you're going to do a rite of passage that your subculture has a way of recognizing what has gone on in these young people's lives and also what they're able to do now. Like, what are they able to do that's different from before? A wedding is a rite of passage. Like uh, this, mm-hmm. this ritual gives you the ability your your tax your taxes change you know for <laughs> for sometimes it's only women but sometimes it's women and men they change their names you mm-hmm. uh you can change location you move to a new place you have this new agency that you didn't have before and so uh sometimes that's i think with weddings sometimes it's more clear in in the traditional way that that weddings you know you left kind of from from your family's home yeah. rather than from your individual home and you weren't necessarily living together but like what what is the greater agency that you have through the ritual? What does it give you power to do? And even if I look at this empowerment, the liminal ritual that I mentioned, where I'm like, oh, I went outside and I did something about breathing and I asked the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit to empower me, um, that was just this simple physical, because rituals are embodied, simple physical ritual that I was pointing to, hey, I can't do this without you, God. And uh, that gave me the ability to go back in, I was working in a library and go back in the library and actually finish the chapter that afternoon. Mm. And so it, it's not like, usually when you think about agency, it's an ability to do something you couldn't do before. Yeah. Uh, but but in that case it is, but it's not like a, a higher task that I wasn't doing. I wasn't even accomplishing that task at all before. Yeah, yeah. You The, the ex- example you give at that moment in the book is um, an inauguration, you know, the, the in an in a presidential inauguration, you are connecting to 
you know, a, a past and a history. Um, although that, in your case here, you weren't especially, that's not the part you were emphasizing at all. It was, it was in this inauguration, I suddenly, now this is a new administration that's going to transform things for better or worse, but, but we've got some, you know, it, it's really about looking forward. Um, but it's also very much about looking back. So, um, I think that's, and, and the, the new, it's also very much about empowering, <laughs> um, an executive, obviously. That's so good. Yeah, and there's something on um, the inauguration that I was thinking of, and again, it doesn't have to do with political affiliation. It was moving. Like there was something that was aesthetically moving about this. Oh, wow. You know, there's something that's happening. And, and, and one would hope that we feel that way in every inauguration and mm-hmm. uh, every, every kind of like you're, you think about installation of a new pastor. Mm-hmm. We do these things because they actually help the individual who's being inaugurated or installed, um, it, it helps them feel empowered to do their task. Mm-hmm. But it also reminds us who are part of the country or part of the church that that this is this is who has been chosen for this. Again, for better or for worse, but like this is who is here, and and it helps us kind of figure out how we are going to move forward into the future. Yeah, well. yeah. Um. One thing that you talk about is the idea that ritual communicates meaning rather than information. Um, that the mean that that's not self evident. The, the distinction between meaning and information. So, can you talk about that a little bit? I'd love to hear you you talk about. Uh, yeah, I talk yeah. about meaning, and then I also talk about about mystery. So, mm-hmm. I want to start with mystery, okay. uh, and this is something. So, ritual theorists would say that ritual does magic. Uh, there's something that happens with people and they say, okay, you know, if you look at a traditional rite of passage or if you look at these rituals that people have experienced, they're magically transformed. Like there's a magic that's there. And they're like, we can't explain to you why. And we also can't explain to you why it seemed to, quote, work for this individual and didn't work for this individual. But there are work. I mean, work is such a weird term, but it didn't seem efficacious, didn't seem to be effective. (laughs) Um, And so, so they talk about ritual magic. Uh, I like to talk about mystery. I think mm-hmm. that when we do rituals and when we do them well, there's a mystery that uh, of the transformation that occurs in the individuals there. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this rite of passage, and this I use the rite of passage just because it's a really easy um, and measured kind of um, ritual that I've been doing. And the and what we do in our crossing over ceremony, so it's a year-long curriculum, and then we have this crossing over ceremony. And in that crossing over ceremony, the women present what they believe to be what they believe to be what a woman is. We give them necklaces, and then we we bless them, and then they we have a little reception. And they leave. I mean, it's 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 just we use normal stuff when we do normal things, and yet so many of them come back to me and they say, "Amy, something changed in the air." When I put that necklace on, because when I walked into my office the next morning, I was a different person. And so I can't tell you, I mean, I can't tell you why. I can't tell you exactly why this is transformative for people. Uh, I want it to be. Mm-hmm. I create the environment. To, and and we can say, okay, Holy Spirit makes this happen, right? But but the, it, things are also transformative for people when they go through a gang initiation. Yeah. They become someone new. And so so there's this mystery and I think the mystery also connects to the meaning. Certainly 
in this rite of passage crossing over that we do, there is information communicated. You know, I talk about the history and I say, hey, this is what we're doing. And and the women give some information, but it's 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 hard to put this into words because because it is it is less wordy. Mm-hmm. In the same way that a symbol communicates in in multiple different ways um, and communicates multiple different things. And this wedding ring, I can talk to you about my marriage till I'm blue in the face, but you'll never understand what this is actually pointing to. Because mm-hmm. I'm not sure I, I even fully understand it. But there is a depth of meaning that is that is somehow deeper than words that rituals tend to communicate. You know, you think about a wedding, and I'm just throwing out these rituals because they're mm-hmm. ones that we've often experienced. If you think about a wedding, well, the way it frequently happens is the 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 groom is waiting and the bride comes in and then they leave together. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly you can say, hey, you know, here's some information about what's going on with the marriage, but they're acting out what that means. We were separate people before we came here. We are now unified and we are going to be together, Lord willing, for the rest of our lives. And so, so there's some information, but, you know, it's it's deeper than that. And it's deeper than that. I don't, I don't know if deeper is the right word. Do you notice that I'm struggling with exactly yeah. how to explain that? Because you can't explain it with words. Yeah. Yeah. On the other, you know, if it's, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but in an inauguration, before the ceremony, you're not the president. And after the ceremony, you are the president. Mm-hmm. But Absolutely. With a, with a wedding ceremony, before the ceremony, you're not married and after the ceremony you are. I mean, something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of those have a legal dimension that maybe your your um crossing over ritual doesn't. Um but I don't know what the rest of that sentence is. But anyway, um th- this is all uh this is helpful. Okay. I want to ask you about you've already mentioned um one ritual you have related to your writing life that involves getting up and going outside and talking to the Holy Spirit and coming back in. Um, do you have other rituals that, um, that are, and it's okay if that, if that's your, your one, that's fine. But do you have other writing related rituals? Cause this is a podcast, uh, our, the center of our target audience, let's say is, uh, writers. I know that there are other people listen, but, but, uh, I always like to talk to writers directly when we can. Well, believe it or not, I've never actually asked myself that question. And it's interesting because I was driving back from, I spoke at Messiah University the last couple of days and I was driving back from Messiah and I was listening to a um, to a podcast and they were talking about the rituals of speaking. Like what mm-hmm. rituals do you do as you mm. prepare to speak? And I'm like, why do I not do this? Why yeah. don't, and they're talking about listening to music and they're talking about getting in that space. I'm like, I I, I can't believe that I just wrote a book on rituals and this yeah. is not something I'm consciously doing. And so I'm delighted to be thinking a little bit more like that as I move into greater writing projects. There are, there are, for me, I have a place. Mm-hmm. I have particular ways. What I find more significant than beginning writing is how I end writing and make myself prepared for the next mm-hmm. time. So I don't know that I would call it ritualized as much as I would call, as I would say that there are certain habits that I have, mm-hmm. 
You know, for most of my writing life, I I teach Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I try to get a good chunk of writing time on on Monday and Friday. And so at the end of my writing time on Monday, if I don't, if I'm not making like an off ramp of like, okay, what is my next thought? Where am I? Mm-hmm. Where am I hoping to go? Then I'll spend a whole hour on Friday completely just trying to figure out where I was. And mm-hmm. so, so there are certain habits that I have. And I you know, I write in particular places. I have particular, I don't have beverages. I'm thinking back to when I was studying for my, for my, for my PhD exams. And mm. I had particular things that I ate and drank while I was preparing. And then I had those things when I was doing the actual act of taking the exam because our senses do help us remember. And so yeah. I want to create rituals that that work for me. Uh, I've instead of being kind of proactive with it, I'm more reactive of like, mm. okay, this isn't working. What can I do to fix? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it would be far better for me to p- be proactive. So I deeply appreciate that that question and I've yeah. got to I've got to be thinking through what's what's going to work for me. Yeah. Uh, I think well, about then, preparing. Uh write an article when you're when you get uh, yeah. this, when you get this figured out. Yeah. Um okay, I always I typically uh, my ritual or my habit. I, you'll have to help me think through if this is a ritual <laughs> or habit. Uh, at the end of my podcast episodes, I uh, habitually ask, uh, who are the writers that make you want to write? So I'd love to hear that from you, Amy. Well, you sent me that question, and so I got a whole pile of books. And okay. then I'm just like, huh, it's really interesting to me, the people that I have chosen. And so I don't I don't know if I, they're all right next to me here. I don't know if I want to tell you all of them, but the people okay. who most excite me about writing yeah. are of course the people who are doing the kind of writing that I'm most interested in. Uh-huh. And so I love academics who make who are incredibly intelligent, but they also just make all these concepts available to the mm-hmm. normal person. And so that's what I hope I'm doing. And mm-hmm. um, so when I look at this, I'm a big Brene Brown fan. Mm-hmm. Like the woman is absolutely 100% brilliant. I wish I yeah. could do some of the things that she did. She has, she did and, and is doing and, and has done. But she is, she just makes everything very accessible to mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. Um, Lauren Winner, love yeah. her. Kate Bowler. I mean, these are yeah. these are academics who are just uh-huh. really bringing things, and they're they're all women. So I see, mm-hmm. I I do see this more with these women that I deeply respect. Um, Beth Allison Barr um, mm-hmm. with the Making a Biblical Womanhood that she recently wrote. My um, my dissertation advisor. Uh, I don't think she's doing that much writing anymore. She's a she's retired now. But Lisa Graham McMinn, I thought was really helpful with that. Uh-huh. I have a friend of mine, Amy Peeler. She just recently published this book a little over a year ago, Women and the Gender of God, and she's doing uh-huh. great work there. And then um, I also have some males on that okay. list. Um, okay. And so the the man who wrote my uh, wrote the foreword to my book, uh, w, w. David O. Taylor, yeah. he's just an incredible individual and yeah, um, a deep thinker. I he he speaks a lot, and he mm-hmm. he's. He's a theologian. I don't know that he would call himself a practical theologian. I would call myself a practical theologian, particularly because I work primarily in the realm of worship, um, because I don't want to do theology in my head without there being some kind of practical outlay for the people. Mm-hmm. And so um, Cutter Calloway, uh, he also works for Fuller and does some great work okay. with that. But then there's um, 
there's there's people over here. So I love learning about the contemplative practices of Roman Catholicism and, and Christian Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. because I think there's so much that I, as a Protestant, can learn from them. Mm-hmm. I really, really love James Martin. He's uh-huh. a Jesuit. He's actually yeah. really close here. And I got into his work when I when I read My Life with the Saints, and because uh-huh. I was just like, saints, what are saints about? Mm-hmm. And I started reading this, and he's telling you these stories about saints and about how it interacts with his life, and then suddenly you know all about this, this individual saint. And so it's this incredible way of working, working with that. I also like really practical people. Uh, one of the books I use in my in my in the book, Meaning in the Moment is uh, Priya Parker's work in the art of gathering. So some of that mm-hmm. practical, I mean, she's she's a deep researcher, has done a huge amount of work, but it, but you're, you're just like, okay, how did this, how does this apply to my life? That's and on so my wife's bedside say, table right now, that book. Is it? It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's super helpful. It. And she's done a couple other things as well. She's really, really interesting. But even as I look at that, I'm like, wow, I've got to expand. I would, I, I love, um, I, I enjoy fiction. Fiction uh-huh. is helpful to me. I don't write fiction, yeah. but getting a steady diet of some, of some, and I, I prefer some of the classic fiction, getting, getting some of that in me helps remind me of that kind of creativity that I, I want to combine creativity and practicality and good deep thoughts and theology in my writing. And so these are people that I see are doing that. Great. Well, Amy F. Davis Abdallah, thank you for being here. This has been a lot of fun to, to talk. And, and I, I'm really interested in that difference between ritual and habit. And I'm going to do some more thinking about it. It sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun to be with you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.